0: Okay, folks, a little post-production note before we get going. We recorded this interview with Rabbi Fred Sherlinder dob in early May, before the murder of George Floyd, before this um, incredible wellspring of, of protests and, and support for Black Lives Matter has, um, has sprung up in this country. Um, this interview is really focused on climate change and 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 the relationship between climate change and and um the pandemic it probably would have come up as as a question in the interview but um rabbi dobb does does talk about the link between racial inequality and climate change and and i think his argument really would he would make the same argument um even though we might have asked him a couple more questions about current events if if um if we recorded this uh, a couple weeks later, but we we decided this this um, Rabbi job really has an essential message that um, that really feels relevant in light of um, in light of everything that's happened. So I say it in the intro. I'll I'll say it again here that this is pretty stark, sobering conversation, but I think it really does give all of us some room for hope and optimism. For my home studio, welcome to Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations.
1: You know, jobs versus the environment is a classic thing that really boils down to short term thinking versus long term hmm. thinking. And Judaism over and over reminds us. We have to focus on the long-term. Ethics are empty. Spirituality is empty if we are not thinking ahead. I'm your
0: host, Brian Schwartzman. Our guest today is Rabbi Fred Scherlinder-Dob, an environmental activist and congregational rabbi. We'll be discussing his Evolve essay, the Jewish Basis for Environmentalism. This piece outlines the Jewish concepts that have long animated Dobbs's approach to environmentalism. So back in early March in E-Jewish Philanthropy, he also published one of the first pieces to tackle the pandemic from a Jewish lens under the title COVID-19 and Torah, Advice from the Sabbatical Year. And we'll be talking about some of the ideas raised in that article as well. And yes, we will get into the debate um, about uh, linking the pandemic and climate change. And he'll, he'll go into some of the reasons why he thinks lessons from one can be drawn and relate to the other. We're also gonna talk about the rabbi's journey as an environmental activist and why as someone devoted to protecting the earth, he chose to do so through the rabbinate, which is not necessarily an obvious choice. I'm gonna say this is a pretty heavy conversation. I mean, climate change, COVID-19, but I promise if you stick with it, he's gonna offer us reasons for hope. So as a reminder, Rabbi Dobbs Evolve essay is available to read for free at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. The essay is certainly not required reading for this show, but we recommend checking it out. Okay, beseder. Now let's get to our guest, Rabbi Fred Sherlinder Dobb. He's the chair of COJEL, the Coalition on the Environment and Jewish Life, and has served as the rabbi at Adat Shalom Reconstructionist Congregation in Bethesda, Maryland, since back in 1997. A graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, he's the chairperson of the Maryland Greater Washington Interfaith Power and Light and past president of the Washington Board of Rabbis. Rabbi Fred Sherlander Dobb, welcome to the show. We're, we're so happy to have you today.
1: Delighted to be on. Thank you.
0: So, first off, acknowledging we 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 do have a little bit of a lag time with our um with our production schedule. Right now, you and I are both still sheltering in place. Um I, I wanted to ask how you're
1: doing. <laughs> Appreciate that. So as of mid-May, we are managing. Um So much of the answer to that question, which comes up dozens of times a day in the pulpit rabbinate uh, in both directions, uh, gets to privilege. Right? We are comparing ourselves to others. And when I remember refugee camps uh, spread out across uh, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, when I think about um, the folks without access to good health care, I think of folks living alone um, and to you know, have a busy household family of four uh, with a lovely backyard um, and, and a stable income and meaningful work to do in the community. Um, I have to start there. Um, That it in no way minimizes the fact that even people with resources are having a heck of a time these days. There's tremendous vulnerability for all of us. There's loss all around. um, And there's wistfulness for what was and may yet be and will be different. And so all of that is real, and it also has to be checked against the grand scheme that a disproportionate number of us in communities like Adat and I assume many of the evolved listeners, um, that we have to stop and count our blessings before we kvetch. But kvetching <laughs> is allowed.
0: All right, as long as, long as kvetching is allowed, I'm down to, to count my blessings. It seems like a good, a good balance. Um, I just wanted to ask, can you, can you say a little bit about the challenges of being a, a congregational Rabbi, in this, in this time, I mean, it's, it, it seems like you've had to make a more profound shift than simply, um, you know, meeting somebody at Starbucks to going on Zoom.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Um, the pivot has been so challenging in the last uh, two months, as of now, two and a half, um, where, you know, a season ago, we had a pretty good sense of where things stood. So we had a sense of what was, and we were, uh, uh, not that long ago, rabbis of a certain generation, right, out a couple decades, would talk about how are we keeping it fresh? Um, And uh, needless to say, fate intervened, and that's no longer something we're talking about, um, because we have had to scramble to think about how both the programmatic piece, and that includes worship, but it also includes youth ed, uh, adult education, um, all of the forms of engagement that, that we do, along with just keeping the institutions going. Um, it also includes all of our tikkun olam efforts, which are prodigious and, and vitally important. All of that had to be transferred from in-person to virtual. And at the same time, so did the pastoral, the interpersonal, as the other big pull. And th- needless to say, the needs on the pastoral front have only gotten greater. So luckily, it doesn't take as much time to set up a Zoom as it does for a congregant to get to the office or me to get to them. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, for all of the savings, um, the, both the time and the energy... Um, that goes into it are uh, unprecedented so this has been the busiest season of my rabbinic career bar none and I never thought I would say that about any month except for September but uh, here we are
0: wow um, so I do I do want to get get us into your essay and and, and um, the connection between Jewish values and environmentalism and, and I have a feeling we'll Will somehow wade back into coronavirus, whether whether we intend to or not. Um, I wanted to take us back a little bit. I'm 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 told by our executive producer, Rabbi Jacob Staub, that that you know when you arrived at our the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, you were, you know, you were bringing your own cup, plate, and utensils. You weren't using any plastic. Um, You'd already walked from, I think you said, Los Angeles to New York. uh, to raise environmental awareness so can you can you tell us a little bit about your beginnings as an environmental activist which sounds like it it, it took shape when you were pretty young uh,
1: thank you I, indeed it did so uh a two-minute version of the spiritual autobiography that we uh, are all <laughs> standing
0: all on one foot through, right
1: <laughs> uh as we go so um I was shaped by a number of forces growing up in uh, Toledo, Ohio, in the reform movement. Uh, One was growing up in poverty, just my mom and me, and uh, not quite on a living wage. So economically challenged, but socially, we had the advantages of the synagogue community, which through the camperships, I went to uh, reform uh, summer camp, uh, one that actually Camp Havaya is in many ways very parallel to, Hmm. um, and, and youth group, and those helped shape me. So progressive Judaism played a big role. Um, as did my mom, uh, a lot of chesed, um, and and that relationship. Um, but somewhere along the way, I got political uh, in high school and um, sort of channeled the combination of the love of Judaism, the chesedic impulse of of kind of. Uh, loving kindness and connection and, and just the values of being nice and a good person and interpersonal relations at the core um, with a systems analysis. And that led me very quickly to ecology as kind of the defining issue. Uh, this was uh, late 80s for me in high school and into college. So uh, I was at Brandeis University and very involved both in Hillel and in progressive organizing. And that's kind of double piece that helped define who I was and, and who I still am. Uh, when, ironically, it, at a majority Jewish school, it was the Catholic chaplain, Father Maurice, who was organizing peace walks, uh, and I did a two-week peace walk from um, uh, New York to D.C. in uh, uh, 1988, and that spawned what became in 1990 the global walk for a livable world. So I took a year off figuring I will learn uh, even more on the road than in a year of classes, as great as those were, and um, part of a year-long environmental education experiment on foot, which was a really remarkable opportunity. Uh, So I was only 20 but uh, they were joking I was like the the rabbi of this uh, interfaith and no faith walk and um, that was sort of the first time I was in that position of communal leadership so whether it was leading worship or being a sort of pastoral presence doing a lot of Jewish outreach um, and that really set the tone so I I entered RRC uh, at 23 with a fairly clearly defined sense that ecology at the center of a matrix of social and environmental justice concerns was at the core of my Jewish identity, but inextricably bound up with it. I can't talk about my Judaism separate from Tikkun Olam, or vice versa. Um, and that uh, th- then enter the you know Rabbi Jacob Staub and so many of the other amazing teachers who then helped guide. The rest of my journey, including my amazing classmates and now colleagues, I just
0: apologies. I wanted to back up for 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 one second before I move on because something something just kind of popped up that I have never walked across the country. I didn't. I wasn't even sure you could do that. I, I mean, I think he we saw Tom Hanks do it in, in Forrest Gump with running. Um, did you did you learn something profound about Life by doing that, or did you have? Is there one story that really sticks out? It just just seems like something that deserves more than a passing mention.
1: <laughs> um, countless stories, obviously. Um, my very first speaking engagement has stuck with me. I was at UC Santa Barbara before the walk even began in the out in the LA area and had the opportunity to speak at the Hillel, and uh, I was 20, and uh, another college student came up to me afterwards. I, this very halting presentation, right? I was totally new at this. It was really a Bartlett's Quotes approach of I quickly crammed to be able to say something meaningful. I hadn't studied the texts in the original. Um, and, um, a, a, a woman, a young woman, came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I, I haven't done anything Jewish since my bat mitzvah, and a friend, you know, I'm now really active in campus environmental stuff, a friend said this was happening, and I don't want to make a big deal, but it's kind of like you give me reason to stay Jewish. Thank you. <laughs> and she walked away. And, uh, you know, uh, this is three years before I started rabbinic school, but that was the moment when I began to realize the incredible power of this for every other value, right? That working on environment as a Jew, it has instrumental value. It's good for the Jewish continuity agenda. It's good for the Jewish community relations agenda. Um, It's good to keep our youth engaged. It's good um, to link social with, uh, with other. It's good to bring the text alive. There, you know, Jewish education, there are so many ways in which this is important on top of the fact that I do believe it is mandated (laughs) by our tradition, that to the extent that we can talk about halacha being operative um, in a a liberal 21st century context, um, protecting the earth and thinking long-term when we make decisions that have impact on others and on the ecosystem um, are core mitzvot for our time. So that's just the first of many. Uh, I'll, I'll just fast forward around Columbus, Ohio, the three quarters point, uh, late summer into fall, um, we were joined by a Holocaust survivor, a 72 year old at the time, who had survived the Krakow ghetto, and uh, we walked and talked uh, that last uh, you know few hundred miles. And uh, for him, ecocide and genocide were forever linked. Um, and um, I you know that's it's just unforgettable and and a lifetime imprint when. You're in the trenches of environmental activism with someone whose motivation comes from such a place of, you know, of unspeakable challenge, um, and it is not, therefore, an either-or that we focus on people or we focus on ecosystems. Ultimately, it has to be both.
0: Okay, short time out here. We hope you are finding this a powerful interview. Do you want others to experience this kind of conversation? Please take a moment to give us a 5-star rating or leave a review. Positive ratings and reviews really help other people find out about the show. Okay, now back to our conversation. So at what point in your evolution as a as a rabbi, as an environmentalist activist did did you see or identify climate change as as the number 1 problem? I mean, was that was that already back in 1988? I mean, clearly Um, I mean, I really think of an. I mean, I really think of an inconvenient truth, um, which came out in 2006 as galvanizing the public conversation in a
1: way it hadn't before. Um, Indeed, it was 1988. I I mentioned this peace march that was kind of in the classic anti-nuclear posture of uh, which I did that summer, and a bunch of us, uh, partway through, I think, staying in a. In a church in Delaware, overnight, the bunch of sweaty, smelly, progressive—you know—peace activists were talking, and we realized that um, the anti-nuclear agenda was about preventing the um, the fairly low odds scenario in any given year of of massive, unprecedented destruction, but the things that we already knew uh, including the very earliest climate science was just coming out in the 80s um including some of the the signature challenges that that helped spark a a rebirth just like 1970 was definitional with uh, the first earth day and what followed was the national environmental policy act the endangered species act clean water and clean air acts and um around heading toward 1990 was very similar And we were early on that particular wave. Um, And we said, let's focus on the thing that that we're already locking in unprecedented devastation every year, and it's getting worse with each subsequent year unless and until we do something about it. And so... That was a moment that for a bunch of us, it crystallized climate and and the broader matrix of of, um, environmental challenge as kind of the defining issue. That doesn't mean that human rights violations, LGBTQ empowerment, egalitarianism, race, oh, underline that one, race and anti-racist work, all part and parcel of the environmental agenda, all necessary as part of, all vitally important on their own, and yet, again, every single one of those is only getting worse as the climate crisis worsens. And no climate solution will ever be able to actually take effect without addressing some of those human questions as well. Um, It's also worth noting that that same year, 1988, I didn't know her yet, but uh, a young Jewish activist in Philadelphia, Ellen Bernstein, was thinking similarly, and it's time to organize in the Jewish community. And uh, the basement of the RRC was the home of the first ever uh, staffed Jewish environmental NGO in history.
0: Shomrei Adama, Adama, uh, right? Okay,
1: Memorial Day weekend of 89, uh, they held their first membership uh, conference, and I was the sole college student delegate there. So I was the the, the youngest person there at the founding of what you might call a mass uh, Jewish environmental movement. So, so much was just the luck of being in the right place at the right time and being able to... Contribute to groups like that, and the coalition on the environment and Jewish life, and these others um, all the way through um, the the history of that movement.
0: I wanted to go to a quote in your in your evolve essay. You wrote that every issue is important. We must never accept the frame imposed by some rightists and leftists alike that various vectors of tikkun olam are in perpetual competition with one another for scarce attentions on on the one level that seems totally intuitive and then thinking about it my 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 inner voice is saying don't individuals and and indeed governments don't we need to don't we need to make priorities don't we need to make choices so what i guess what what do we mean when when we're saying every every issue is important
1: um the reason that I wrote that in the climate uh, and environment essay and right. not in any of the others um, is because this is the one that the others w- will be dwarfed by <laughs> uh, hmm. literally swamped by inundated by with rising seas with rising vectors of public health crisis with extreme drought fueling massive political instability and growing numbers of climate refugees. Um, I, you know, take take refugees as a great example, and for very obvious reasons in the last three or four years, um, the... Just defending America as a land of immigrants has been front and center for much of the organized Jewish community. I've been part of that. I've uh, I've quote only been arrested three times in civil disobedience, twice on environment, once explicitly with Dreamers uh, on the immigration issue. Uh, it is absolutely vital, and we have 70 million refugees in the world right now, an unprecedented number, and already many millions of those are attributable to climate crises, which include the massive dislocation in Syria and its neighbors, where drought helped to fuel the unrest that led to um, the disintegration and the massive suffering that we're now seeing. That is going to only get bigger. I cannot be an immigration activist. I cannot speak on behalf of refugees without stopping to think about the climate crisis. And I cannot address the question of adaptation of how we uh, respond to a world with growing numbers of refugees without also thinking about mitigation. How do we reduce the future harms that we're locking in with our current and rising carbon emissions? Um, such that future generations will be saddled with an even greater refugee crisis than we have. So, for climate, it is connected to almost everything that we work on. And the people who say, I'm so focused on this social justice issue, I don't have time to think about how my diet contributes to the carbon Mm. crisis. I don't have time to look for a more efficient vehicle. Um, and emit less as part of my daily commute in the pre- and post-COVID era, right, etc., are missing the boat in some very dangerous and myopic ways. So too are the dwindling number of effete white affluent environmentalists for whom the goal is a pristine arctic with polar bears, and who don't stop to think about the disproportionate harms on people of color, who don't Recognize that climate is hitting the global south much worse than it's hitting the global north. Um, those kinds of questions also, you know, it's a critique of environmentalism, which uh, thirty years ago was woefully stuck in that narrow place of thinking and has come a very long way. Still has further to go.
0: Great, thank you. Um, I'm curious. There's there's just there's just so much within the the scope of Jewish tradition and, and, and texts and, and, you know, we've all seen it mined for, for different ends. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you ever, you know, encountered in your time in anything in the text that really challenged your, your linking environmentalism and, and Judaism and, and how you, how you, how you dealt with it or, or how you, how you understood it. Cause I'm sure there could be, you know, as much, you could find a quote, uh, that would that would talk about economic development, or or you know the importance of earning a living, or, or something like that.
1: Beautiful question, and um, it, so yes, absolutely. Going back to the Mishnah, there's the famous passage that one who interrupts their studies in order to acknowledge how beautiful is that tree or that plowed field, uh, Scripture considers as if they had forfeited their soul. And there's a lot of apologetic readings to do for that, but you know, there's always been the the country dweller and the city dweller tension, the rancher and the farmer, hmm. uh, we, we, you know, going all the way back to Cain and Abel, and um, that also touches on modern environmental thinking with like Daniel Quinn, Ishmael, the leavers and the takers. There's some beautiful ways that these teachings just keep, res- you know, getting recycled, if you will, from generation to generation. Um, but the fact is these are what our tradition calls machlokot lashim shamayim disagreements for the sake of heaven so lihit kayam in the end they endure that's also mishnah and we have to separate what is a what are the fundamental questions um, including those where there's truth on both sides uh, and human needs, environmental needs. It's a false dichotomy because ultimately if we don't take care of the environment, human needs collapse as well. But in a given moment, my next unit of, I have an hour to volunteer, I have $36 of tzedakah to give, where do I put it? It can feel like it's a zero-sum game and there is no right answer. They are both important. That is a machlok at L'Shim Shema'im. There are others that are not. Um, And, you know, jobs versus the environment is a classic thing that really boils down to short-term thinking versus Mm long-term thinking. And Judaism, uh, along with every other great spiritual tradition over and over, reminds us we have to focus on the long-term. Ethics are empty. Spirituality is empty if we are not thinking ahead. And if we only prioritize the needs of the moment, we are going to do horrible things when it comes to the environment. We're also going to do horrible harm in the interpersonal and social arenas. Um, And whether that's a question of this moment of corona and how fast we reopen and how much we prioritize economy over Hmm. human lives, um, that is also one of those false dichotomies that is not uh, uh, and ultimately neither is can we afford to protect the environment can we afford to retool our economy and rethink our ways of life in order for it to be sustainable for our grandchildren right? the real question is can we afford not to and of course the answer is no we cannot afford not to so,
0: so in, in your Evolve essay and your, and your more recent e-Jewish philanthropic Philanthropy essay that that touched on on coronavirus, um, you heavily influence or you heavily discuss the the idea of of, of shmita, which I believe translates to sabbatical. You you could correct me and and really go into great depth at it. So, I guess I was wondering if you could give us the the sense of why why understanding this idea is so important to understanding what Judaism has to say about the environment and climate change today
1: so, uh thank you. Had you not asked, I would have put it in anyway, as every muchlo <laughs> you know, knows. um I told uh, Rabbi Deborah Waxman on her uh, uh Hashivenu Resilience okay. podcast that um that it's actually become a, a punchline <laughs> of a joke <laughs> right uh you know Rabbi Fred starts to speak and waits, and everyone says Shemitah, because that's what <laughs> we talk about um. Shmita actually translates as release, radical release, which is critical because it's release from the ways that we have done things that are not sustainable. Um, it's also release from um, the expectation that the way things had been are the way things will be. Um, so it is also sabbatical it's in- interchangeable with shvi'it the seventh year or shabbaton sabbatical those three terms mean the same thing when we're talking about the jewish legal institution going back to exodus leviticus and deuteronomy where it's mentioned in four or five different parshiot um, which by the way is more than keeping kosher is right it, this is really a fundamental gift from our earliest ancestors. Um, And it's not only an environmental issue, it's economic, it's social, it's political. It's how we organize as communities for resilience all the time. It's baking in the notion that six years can be (laughs) normal-ish, but 14% of the time predictably we're going to need to downsize. We're going to need to know and be cooperative with our neighbors. We are going to have corona (laughs) every seventh year. We are going to have to think about where our food supply chains are coming every seventh year. We are going to need to stay connected enough, small enough, ethical enough, cross-trained enough, resilient enough to be ready for massive economic and social and environmental bumps along the way. And tradition said, be ready. (laughs) Later tradition said, that's really hard to do, and created legal fictions around it so that the radical notion of the release of Shemitah was lost. But I think of it in mathematical terms as an asymptote, right? It's the the axis that a curve uh, rises to reach ever gradually closer but never quite getting there. We will never and should never practice exactly what is outlined in Leviticus chapter 25 um, or Deuteronomy 15, but we absolutely have to grapple with the ethics and the values behind that institution, which talk about linking economic social, political, environmental, and spiritual concerns all always rolled into one. A member of the synagogue after reading the piece that i wrote in ejp about Shemitah as a bed of jewish values for the covid era and it was quite early it was early march uh you know way before six
0: was was an eternity ago right
1: it, it, right <laughs> um and i, I was on going to work <laughs> <laughs> um, I was honored that, to get one of the first published pieces about Jewish values in the COVID era out there and, and more honored that Shemitah was the focus because, um, the, you know, as a member of adachalom told me afterwards, you gave all those sermons on Shemitah and I sort of got it. But then I saw the vulnerability of the, of the COVID era And I read that piece, and then I really got it. (laughs) The the need for cross-training, the need for um, knowing your neighbors and plugging in, the need to roll up your sleeves and know how to do things differently. Um, So whether it's a cessation of formal agriculture every seventh year and the need to be able to live off the land and off the storehouses, um, right? Right. That means just-in-time production chains (laughs) are not the answer. That means that indefinite population growth is not sustainable. That means that we need to, every once in a while, celebrate living small, even as we also celebrate the advantages of the scale of a modern community that can support the kind of creativity that we see in our great cities. That, too, is holy. But so is everyone knowing, whether it's on your windowsill or your backyard, um, t- how to raise vegetables that, that we ourselves can consume without needing them to be raised thousands of miles away uh, with heavy pesticides and trucked with great environmental expense to get to a store that we're now nervous about shopping in because of contagion. Uh, So the Corona era is actually proving uh, the need for Shemitah as that bedrock set of values, that asymptote that we hold up and say, does this economic idea, does this social idea, does this way of organizing our lives actually still look sustainable (laughs) through the lens of Shemitah and that particular kind of resilience?
0: I mean, it's not at all surprising. Surprising that the the response to coronavirus, on in some levels, in in has been political and polarized. I mean, I just finished the Ron Chernow biography of Alexander Hamilton, and the 1793 yellow fever epidemic was polarized, and and you know, but um, but it's been very much so, and and to the extent that climate change has been discussed, it's 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 also been through a very partisan lens where 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 um where we we almost hear people putting things in their you know in the mouths of their of their opponents um aha you see those environmentalists they're happy that you know everything stopped you know which which I, I don't think's been you know actually been been said by prominent environmentalists but can you help us unpack kind of what if anything the the connection might be between this this global this globalized threat and virus and and how we think about climate change or, or oh, yeah. is there is there no connection I mean
1: oh quite the opposite um, in fact uh, a piece that I'm now working on is um, it's all about flattening the curve um, and there's the covid curve and there's the Keeling curve uh, named for Charles Keeling, the scientist who in the late 50s founded the observatory on, uh, on Mauna Kea in Hawaii that's taken accurate um, snapshots of, of global CO2 concentrations uh, for, you know, two or three generations now and that's the curve made famous by Al Gore and, you know, etc. But it's, it's a piece of science And that is a curve that we are nowhere near flattening. And that is a curve that stands to kill untold millions in the years and generations ahead uh, with a a fatality rate higher than that of COVID-19. And we have also learned from this that it is possible to trust science and to take massive steps that have an adverse immediate economic impact in order to protect life. That core value of pikuach nefesh, potentially saving a life, that in Judaism uh, it has the ultimate, it is, sorry to use the, the name, it's the ultimate trump card, <laughs> right? The possibility <laughs> of saving life overwhelms almost every other value that you can put on the table. And, The challenge and the need and the opportunity in the COVID era and the climate era is to redefine Pikoach Nefesh as a long term set of concerns as well as an immediate set. The halakha says, the Jewish law, that you can violate Shabbat um, if there's a reasonable possibility that this is a life and death situation. Um, If If it's not, then you have to wait, (laughs) right? Um, And that's already very progressive within a a traditional Jewish framework for how we act, that the value of life has to push other things aside. What we now know is burning coal for our electricity instead of um, solar or wind and driving a vehicle that's worst in class as opposed to best in class, or driving when you could, in the old days, (laughs) take public transit or or walk or bike. Every one of those things is locking in suffering and death in incremental but very real and measurable ways through peer-reviewed science guaranteed that every unsustainable act we take has an adverse impact on... The, the poor and the marginal today <laughs> or tomorrow on endangered species next year and on our own progeny, the next generation and three and four generations, because that's how long carbon stays in the atmosphere. We need to take the core of Jewish teachings with new power from the COVID response when people do listen to science and are willing to take a short-term economic hit in the name of saving life and just apply that from flattening the COVID curve to flattening the Keeling curve.
0: While we have just a couple seconds of your time, if you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations of Evolve on the podcast, on the website, in our web conversations, or even the curriculum we're producing, you can. You can make a contribution to reconstructingjudaism.org backslash evolve-donate. There's also a link in our show notes. Thanks for listening and thank you for your support. All right, now back to this conversation. You write a lot about entitlement and what what we're not entitled to. And and my, my sense, if I read your writing correctly, you would like individuals to consume less governments to pursue policies that that consume less and help individuals consume less and i mean my sense of the environmental movement is so far telling upper middle class people in in western societies to live less well hasn't hasn't worked is 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 that is that mm-hmm. accurate and do you do you see this as a as a potential Potential game-changer because because like you said we have taken Extraordinary steps that that, you know has has really wrecked our economy in, in the short
1: term Precisely um, So first we need to redefine sacrifice. This is another gift of our tradition, right? the Latin and the Hebrew are the same sacrifice is from sacred and Korban the biblical name for the sacrifices offered on the altar in um is from Karov to draw close or get near, get proximate. So in every case uh, and all the way into the modern experience in baseball, right? (laughs) A sacrifice is a good thing. It's an investment. It's a a short-term hit for the sake of a long-term gain. And when we focus not on what we give up to live a sustainable life, but we focus on what we get, it then becomes just the logical thing to do. And in fact, if we found the way to price into the market, the actual social cost of carbon on a multi-generational basis, then even the free market itself could be part of the solution, right? We now need regulation and political conversation around it because we're so not there. Um, and a few people are getting rich off of the climate crisis, and the rest of us are suffering, and so will our mm. great-grandchildren. Um, so, so the part one of answer to this very important question is um, that we need to reframe and giving up is actually getting. Uh, that's not doublespeak, that's not Orwell, it's quite the opposite. <laughs> the assumption, right, the, the real Orwellian 1984 reality is that from 1984 all the way to 2020, we think we can emit, we think we can enjoy cheap gas and cheap beef and cheap everything that that where the, the actual long-term cost is staggering. And we don't stop on a daily basis to think of that as hypocrisy or as an ethical uh, failing on our parts. That can change. It's not about giving up a hamburger. Um, it's about gaining a, a life that our great grandchildren can endure. <laughs> speaking
0: um, speaking of hamburgers, is it true? Is 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 beef really worse than than cars? in, in terms of what's 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 the big a big problem for
1: yeah, so glad you asked. Um, the the uh, United Nations, uh, f- the food program uh, related to the UNEP environmental program originally said 18% of all anthropogenic, meaning human-caused uh, climate effects were related directly to livestock compared to 14% for the entire transportation sector. They then revised it downward to 14.5% while never acknowledging the multiple peer-reviewed studies that said that theirs was a radical undercount because it didn't include respiration and other factors, um, that some estimates place it as high as 50 or 51 percent. So it is at least as big as transportation sector and possibly even bigger than the energy sector. Um, so diet and and uh, car and source of house electricity are by far the top three things that we can do, and some of it is very unsexy. Retrofitting a boiler or an HVAC system is sometimes the best thing that an office or a synagogue or a home can do. Um, with uh, you know, and ultimately it saves money. Short term it costs, um, but ultimately it saves lives, and that's again, the clarity of the conversation. Um, so I said that redefining sacrifice is is part one. Um, there is more, and uh, some of it is the how good it feels to actually do the right thing, to live in line with our values, and to just have that mental picture of the great-grandchildren not yet born in mind when I think about what I'm doing. That gets to the important and growing field of climate communications, which is where psychology and marketing and, and economics all kind of come into the picture. And you're absolutely right that the, the historic voice of nah nah nah, you can't do that, <laughs> um, has has obviously not worked to bring about the widespread change that is needed. Um, so we need to replace the don't do the negative with the do the positive. Build the world that we want our children and their children to enjoy and when we frame it that way build a judaism that is going to speak to rising generations in an era of climate change and all of its upheavals as a source of inspiration as something that is meaningful and a place of happiness a place of depth and meaning then we have to rethink how do we approach jewish life, and Jewish education? And how can we possibly continue to have disposables at synagogue for the Oneg? How can we possibly continue to assume that chicken and beef are the way to celebrate Shabbat? How can we possibly even continue in a post-COVID era to say, I can't wait to get back to where we all drive to that overcrowded parking lot so that we can celebrate the anniversary of creation every Shabbat? That is one of the hidden gems of this Zoom era, as we realize we can see each other in worship when it's on Zoom, and we can do it in our PJs, (laughs) right? But that also means we can do it with almost zero carbon, depending on where the electricity to run your laptop comes from. Um, And if you've got solar panels on your roof or you pay for uh, offsets for wind, then, um, then truly zero carbon Shabbat observance. And we are still in community. Does that mean that we should never go back to in person in a post COVID era? Of course not. Community is a value all its own. But should we assume that we should all keep driving every Shabbat to shul? Is that really what a post COVID back to normal is going to look like? Or can back to normal be toward something sustainable and ultimately better and holier and more beautiful than? what we had m- mistakenly called normal as recently as February of 2020.
0: I think this is a place for, for what could be the last question, depending on if, if there's, if there's follow-up it's, it's one I've really wanted to, been wanting to ask. And it's about, it's about hope um, on so many levels. I am fearful of, of the world my children are, are inhabiting. I'm, I'm sure since the dawn of time or c- cognition, parents have wondered what, what kind of world did I bring my child into. But you know, I'm 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 having those thoughts now, and you're you're a, you're a parent as well. Um, in your evolve piece, you you write about hope being the hardest but most important value pertaining to environmentalism. So, what would you say to someone, um, either a hypothetical listener or me? Uh, <laughs> who's having a, a really hard time being, being hopeful right now?
1: Um, <laughs> you, you're not crazy <laughs> for having that, that challenge and that question. Um, it it is the, makes
0: me feel a little better. <laughs>
1: uh, it, it is the baked-in irony that the people who know the most about uh, the science and the, the trend lines around the greatest long-term threat to, to humanity's way of life as we've known it, um, also have to peddle hope, right? Uh, like we have to peddle the, the painful truth. We're, we're Jeremiah. We are, you know, the no fun people at a party on Saturday night of, you know, yeah, I'm having fun, but have you thought about rising emissions? Um, and we also have to be agents of hope. Um, and the hope is, is abstract at times, but real just as every mile we drive, even in a Prius, much less in a Hummer, right? And everything we eat, even tofu, much less burgers, um, comes at a measurable environmental impact. But also, every positive act that we engage in, every reduction in emissions that we participate in, every phone call we make on behalf of a candidate who may yet get elected and help move the needle, Right, Every little action that we take demonstrably in the grand picture, just like one vote may not matter in a given election, but ultimately votes matter more than anything, um, so do every one of those impacts. And we know um, that ultimately the scales that we're on are analog, not digital. Right? Digital, it's either zero or one. It's sustainable, it's sustainable, it's sustainable, then we fall off a cliff. And it doesn't work that way. You know, it does work that way for an individual who either will or won't survive the next flood driven by a more active hurricane on rising seas, right? It is for an individual endangered species, whether it will wink out of existence or manage to eke out a return, um, there's lots of those that are in fact digital. And we have already locked in massive suffering, massive death, massive environmental consequence. It's going to get worse before it gets better because carbon endures for a century in the atmosphere. Even if we cut our emissions now, we would still have effects for a century. But there are people in the future who could live and not die. Because in the fall of 2020, or the spring of 2022, whenever the post-COVID era dawns for us fully, because people chose a more sustainable path. Because people understood that sacrifice was actually about gaining something beautiful like life for our great-grandchildren. And there will be entire societies There will be entire species, entire ecoregions, among those that do survive the devastation we've already locked in, who will live because we made those choices. That's a complex and challenging hope to hold on to, but it is real, it is scientific and peer-reviewed, and it (laughs) is deeply, deeply Jewish. Because we are the inheritors of a tradition that says God is thinking, and we are of course supposed to emulate God, imitatio Dei, um, God is thinking, according to Exodus 34, uh, the uh, the 13 attributes, to the third and fourth generation when it comes to iniquity. That's the carbon cycle. But God is thinking to the thousandth generation for chesed, for loving kindness. That is beginning to get to geological timescales, theological timescales. Are we being good ancestors? And if we can answer that in the affirmative, we can find meaning for now and hope for later.
0: Wow, a lot to think about, process, and, and do and act on rabbi Fred, with with the fate of the world, we could we could keep talking for a while. I think this this was great. Thanks for a really thoughtful and informative uh, conversation. Um, it was really good to have you on the show.
1: Thank you. I'm honored to be a part of this. I'm honored to be part of a movement that asks these questions and creates a forum like Evolve. And every single one of the articles there is vital and every single one of them also has a climate connection. (laughs) And uh, we need to just keep that in mind as we prioritize uh, how we emerge from this crazy collective moment that we're in. And we will emerge.
0: Thanks so much for uh, sticking to the end of our interview with Rabbi Fred Dobb. I I told you he'd give us some hope at the end. If you liked it, please be sure to read the essay, The Jewish Basis for Environmentalism. So what did you think of today's episode? Be honest, we wanna hear from you. Evolve is all about meaningful conversations, dialogue, back and forth, you name it. That, That includes you, you're part of this, you're part of the listener community. Send us your questions, comments, feedback, whatever you got. You can reach me. I'm, I'm putting my personal email out there in the interweb. Schwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. So I'd love to hear from you. Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Wachs. Our theme song, Ilufinu, was composed by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we'll see you next time.